If you have your Bibles with you in some form, in some format, on your phone or however it may be um, with you today, you can turn to the book of Acts. We are, are not going to uh, um, read any passages at length, but I'm going to reference some points of the book of Acts that I would ask and encourage you to note and, uh, and look at even during uh, your own time on your own. And uh, if, you're, if you're in touch with us online, you know that there is a uh, condensed version of these Sunday messages that I deliver uh, to your inbox and on social media um, that you can also go through and review this message again uh, during the week. And uh, I encourage you to take advantage of that. And perhaps there are things that you miss and you're able to then just catch that through listening to the video message again. Uh, that's what it's there for. And, and it's there to share as well. Please share uh, those messages. Um, if you're looking for a way to just encourage a family member or a neighbor or a friend, please, please feel free to do that. You don't need my permission to do that. Just go ahead and do that. And share those if they're, if they're helpful in that way to you. If you're not, you don't want to share them, then that's okay too. No pressure. Um, we have been learning that God can and does, in fact, use all kinds of events. Like this pandemic. He uses them to alert us to things that we need to see but we might ignore because it's easier to do that. Yet when this happens, we should not interpret these events behind the back of the incarnate Son of God, behind the back of Jesus. These are all things, this is review. Those of you that have been with us through this series, some of this stuff will sound familiar to you because I'm just quickly reviewing what we've been looking at and studying together. Our habit should always be to assume that the sign par excellence of all that the one God has done, is doing, and will do, the sign of all of this is Jesus Himself. Yes, these other things happen. Events like this happen. But the sign that is to be our centerpiece is Jesus. We are to interpret and understand all of these other signs of the times through Jesus. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus crucified. Jesus risen and ascended and promising to return in glory. Jesus, the true Lord of the world. We must read and we must interpret the events of the world in light of all of this summed up and complete in Jesus Himself. So we've overviewed the Scriptures. That's what we've been doing. We've been doing a, a bit of a, an overview, a journey through the Scriptures. We've overviewed the Old Testament prophetic tradition We've looked at the Psalms a little bit, and then we have been into the Gospels. And all of these finding their full significance in Christ 
Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. All of these are summed up in Christ. Now, as we continue, for us to get a better grasp of what this is to look like in our lives as we come to understand this and then seek to live this as the people of God in the pandemic and let it find expression in our lives, all of these things we've been reflecting on in these reflections, we move on now into the rest of the New Testament. We have the book of Acts open before us today. And the New Testament refers back constantly, as do more or less all all Jewish writings, to the great foundational events of Passover. Passover. On the Hebrew calendar, in fact, we've just entered into on this weekend Rosh Hashanah. And Passover is coming in the spring. It's, it falls usually around the same time that we would celebrate Lent and then into Easter. Passover, the time when God rescued Israel from the slavery of Egypt. Jesus himself made Passover central to his work of announcing God's kingdom and to his own vocation to go to the cross. And that is why he chose Passover to go to Jerusalem. If you remember last week, the passage we reflected on the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11 in particular, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He chose Passover, in fact, very strategically to go to Jerusalem that last time. And why he did, and and in order to interpret his death beforehand, he gave his followers a meal which both belongs with Passover itself and which points forward to what he was to accomplish the next day. Isn't that interesting? When Jesus wants to show the power and the significance and and the purpose of what he is doing and is about to do and culminate in the cross, he doesn't give his disciples uh, a a book. He doesn't give them anything else. He doesn't give them a, a program. He doesn't give them... He gives them a meal. The Passover meal. Now... An interesting thing about Passover is that when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, and and mark this, nobody ever understood Passover to be or said that it was a result of their sin. That was not the perception they had. To be sure, in Jesus' time, the terrible situation of the Jewish people having been trampled on by Babylon and by Greece and by Syria and now Rome, 
meant that they regularly interpreted their plight, not just in terms of needing a new exodus, but also in terms of needing the forgiveness of sins that the prophet Isaiah and the other prophets had promised. Exile was undoubtedly, from the prophet's point of view, the result of sin. And no rescue from exile would mean, or or rather, so rescue from exile would mean forgiveness. Even so, even so, there, there, there was this aspect to their understanding of Passover. Passover, in its initial and, and foundational sense, was when, when it was initially given and the instructions and command and order of it were given by God to His people, it was never about forgiveness. Jacob and his sons, if you know anything about their story, they were hardly paragons of virtue. They were hardly examples and models of moral excellence or perfection. But Genesis, interestingly enough, makes no connection between that and the long years of slavery. Indeed, when the famine strikes the Middle East, they don't say, ah, Genesis 42, they don't say, ah, this is because we've sinned. That's why we're in this famine. Because we've sinned. We need to repent. They don't say that. They say, we've heard That there's corn in Egypt. Genesis 42, verse 2. You see, they're not looking backwards at what might have caused the problem. They're looking forwards to see what needs to be done. And that, right there, sets the pattern for one of the first and most interesting examples from the early days of the church, which we're going to look at in a moment. A pattern that could point forwards to our own days of the church. A pattern that could point forwards to our own appropriate response to our present problems to this coronavirus crisis. The early chapters of the book of Acts, and I've had you just open that in front of you, the early chapters of the book of Acts paint a vivid picture of the life of the early church, our ancestors, spiritually, in the very early days and beginnings of the church that Jesus is building. And it's quite a page-turner. If you've never read through the book of Acts, I encourage you to do so. It's, 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 a, it's an incredible read. And in the midst of all of the action that's happening, happening, along with some dramatic moments, it might be easy for us to miss an incident that is freighted with significance for us in itself for our particular theme that we're looking at in this series of reflections. 
Acts chapter 11 is what I'm thinking of. And Acts chapter 11 takes us to the church in Syrian Antioch. And, I, and I'm just going to kind of sketch it out for us. We're not going to read the chapter, but I encourage you, again, read the chapter. Read through the book of Acts. Acts 11 takes us to the church in Syrian Antioch just under 500 kilometers north of Jerusalem. Okay? It's a bustling cosmopolitan city, Antioch is. Right on the trade routes. With people from any and every country, either resident or passing through. So it's a very different city from Jerusalem. Many people from many different nationalities have come to believe in Jesus. And the church in Antioch is growing. It's vibrant. It's electric with the energy of the Holy Spirit. Barnabas comes from Jerusalem to check it out and is delighted because he can see God's grace so clearly at work. You see that in verse 23 of chapter 11. Then Barnabas goes to find Saul, who becomes Paul not too long after this. And he brings him to help with the work of teaching and preaching. And it was around this same time that traveling prophets, chapter 11 tells us, arrived in Antioch from Jerusalem. And one of them was named Agabus. And Agabus stood up and he told the assembly what the Spirit of God had revealed to him. There would, he announced, be a great famine over the whole world. Verses 27 and 28 of chapter 11. And these things were known to happen from time to time. It, to, to hear of a famine that would be occurring, it wasn't really altogether a surprise for anyone to hear that. It was a common happening. They were known to happen from time to time as they had done nearly two millennia earlier, bringing Jacob and his family to Egypt. That's what brought Jacob and his family to Egypt in the first place. We heard that there's corn in Egypt, so they went to Egypt. And the story of Joseph is tied into that and so on, And if you, if you recall. So Luke comments here that the famine actually took place. Luke is the author of Acts. He comments that this famine actually took place, as Agabus had prophesied, during the reign of Claudius in 41 to 44 AD, or 41 to 54 rather. And we know from other historical sources of more than one serious famine that took place during that period. So this verifies to us that it did actually happen. So there's this crisis. This famine is taking place. And here's the question I want us to ask and reflect on this morning. So how did the Antioch Jesus followers respond to this? What do they say? Well, they do not say... Either, this must be a sign from the Lord. He's coming back soon. They don't say that, interestingly enough. 
Or they don't say, this must mean, this famine must mean that we have sinned and we need to repent. No, they don't say that. Or they don't even say that this will give us a great opportunity to proselytize and tell the wider world that everyone has sinned and needs to repent. Turn or burn. They don't even say that. Nor do they start the blame game looking around at all the civic authorities and governing rulers in Syria and trying to point the finger, well, if it wasn't for him and if it wasn't for them and if they didn't do this and if they had took it, taken it more seriously and, you know, all the stuff that we see going on right now. They don't do that. They don't try to blame anyone in Syria or the wider region or even the Roman Empire to see whose ill-treatment of the ecosystems and the environment or whose tampering with food distribution networks might have somehow contributed to this dangerous situation of famine that they find themselves in. They don't do any of that. Now, this may have been going on in the culture around them, but they, as the people of God, didn't do any of that. Instead, they ask three simple questions. And we see them alluded to in verses 29 to 30 of chapter 11. They ask, who is going to be at special risk when this happens? What can we do to help? And who shall we send? Interesting. Now, some might look at this and think, well, that's pretty unspiritual and untheological as a response, isn't it? It's just pragmatic. But you know, that would actually be the really unspiritual, untheological response to think that way, as we are inclined to. You see, here we stumble upon one of the great principles of the kingdom of God in these questions that the Antioch Jesus followers ask. They're rooted in one of the great principles of the kingdom of God. The principle that God's kingdom inaugurated through Christ Jesus is all about restoring all creation, all humankind in nature, the way it was meant to be. God has always wanted to work in His world through loyal human beings. I'll say that again. God has always, it has always been His desire and intention to work in His world through loyal human beings. And this is part of the point of being made in God's image in the first place. So, just as when in John chapter 9, Jesus says that the works of God are going to be revealed, and then goes to work Himself, Jesus does, we can imagine that the Antioch church, figuring out prayerfully what God was doing in this moment of their history, not why the famine was occurring, but what was to be done to help. What are we to do? What is it that God wants us 
to do. And realizing that what God was doing, He was going to do through them. Through you. Through me. That is part of believing in the work of the Holy Spirit. They were a busy and apparently prosperous church. Antioch. The Jerusalem church, on the other hand, was poor and sporadically persecuted. So the first two questions weren't hard. Who's at risk and how can we help? Then it was just a matter of prayerfully considering who to send. And this is the kind of thing I think Paul has in mind when he later writes to the Roman Christians that God works with and through those who love Him to bring things to a good end. Otherwise known as Romans 8.28. God works with and through those who love Him to bring things to a good end. And we're going to look more at that particular verse a little later on in our series of reflections. But notice, by the way, one feature of the early church in this story. Never before in the world history has a multicultural group in one city felt under any fraternal obligation to a monocultural group. Recognize that. Antioch was a multicultural context. They were a multicultural church. Jerusalem was very much a monocultural church. It was Hebrew. It was Jewish. Antioch wasn't like that. It was very rich in, in multiculturalism, multi-ethnicities, multinational. And never before in world history has a multicultural group in one city felt under any fraternal obligation to a monocultural group in another city 500 kilometers away. The Jewish communities around the world would have understood this principle. Members of the Roman imperial civil service might have seen themselves as part of the same larger team as colleagues in another province, but the church... So here we witness something that is unprecedented in Acts 11. Something that has never happened before. Something that is very powerful. And as we face our own questions about how to help, we should bear in mind this example. And that's why I'm drawing our attention to it this morning and having us for a few moments reflect on this. Whatever the Christian response to COVID-19 should be, what should the Christian response be? As Christ followers, what should our response be as the people of God? Whatever our response should be, it should be one in which all Christ followers can join. Not just some. The point is that under the new covenant spoken by Jesus on the night He was betrayed, a reference to Jeremiah 31 in fact, the early church believed that God was energizing them by His own personal presence. 
the Holy Spirit was given so that individual believers and still more the believers when joined together for corporate worship and community, they would take up their responsibilities in the world as God's eyes and ears and His hands and His feet, the body, as Paul uses that metaphor, in the world to do what needed to be done in the world. And this is why from the very start, early Christians looked out at the world as Jesus had looked out upon His beloved people Israel and had seen what God was wanting to do and wanting to say and had prayerfully got on and done and said that themselves. The people of God looked at the world the way Jesus looked at the world and they said, what are we to do? Who needs our help? Who should we send? How should this be? Well, this is how Jesus instructed us. This is how He showed us. They gave themselves to be and do that themselves. This is what mission is all about. When we talk mission here, our missions, this is what it's all about. As Jesus Himself said in John 20 and verse 21, as the Father has sent Me, so I am sending you. As Jesus had been to Israel, so His followers were to be to the world. This is how it happens. This is how it works. And remember, Jesus said that to a small group of people who were locked in because they were afraid. Sound familiar? These have been days where we've been locked in, some out of fear. But we'll come back to that. After all, the dangerous declaration statement of God's kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, to which we've studied together here in this, uh, this gathering, that dangerous declaration isn't simply about ethics as we often imagine in our shrunken Western world. It's about mission. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek, the mourners, the peacemakers, the hungry for justice people, and so on. Blessed. You see, we all too easily assume that Jesus is saying, try hard to be like this, and if you can manage it, you'll be the sort of people I want in my kingdom. No, that's not at all the point. The point is that God's kingdom is being launched on earth as in heaven, and the way it will happen is by God working through this kind of people. This kind of people will be blessed. Those who are poor in spirit, the meek, the mourners, this is how my kingdom will come through these kind of people. After all, so often when people look out on the world and its disasters, they wonder why God doesn't just march in and take over. Why, they ask, does He permit this? Why doesn't He send a thunderbolt or something a little less like what a pagan deity might do? Why, 
why doesn't he put things right? And the answer is that God does do something. He does seek to act. He does send thunderbolts, if you will. Human ones. His body. The people of God. He sends in the poor in spirit. The meek. The mourners. The peacemakers. The hungry for justice people. Kingdom living people. The people of God. They are the way God wants to act in His world. This is talking about you and me. They are more effective than any lightning flashes or thunderbolts from heaven, if you will. They will use their initiative. They will see where the real needs are and go and meet them. They will weep at the tombs of their friends like we looked at in Jesus last week at Lazarus' tomb. At the tombs of their enemies. Some of them will get hurt. Some may even be killed. And that is the story of the book of Acts. All through, from start to finish, there will be problems, punishments, setbacks, shipwrecks, but God's purpose will come through and prevail. These people, prayerful, worshipful, humble, faithful, will be the answer. Not to the question why, but to the question what. What needs to be done here? Who is most at risk? How can we help? Who shall we send? God is always at work in all things with and through those who love Him. May we ever press onward to be His hands, to be His feet, to be His mouth, to speak for justice, to speak truth to power, His heartbeat for the poor, His life. It flows within us to shatter chains of bondage and break down prison doors. Indeed, may we love wholeheartedly. Because love never fails, Paul said. And may we see chains of oppression and depression broken. May we see prisons of anxiety and fear shaken open. May we love wholeheartedly. May we live as we were created in the image of God. Being the people of God in this pandemic, in our broken and fragmented world. Amen.